Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. When we think of rebellions against English colonial power, we usually think of the 18th century American Revolution or the 20th century Indian independence movement. But folks have been rebelling against the English crown for much longer than that. As early as the 13th century, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales were fighting against English dominance in the Isles. This is the story of one of those rebellions, led by Owain Glyndwr, a Welsh prince who might have believed in prophecies of a figure who would free Wales from foreign rule. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Castellanos-Clark, and today I'm covering Owain Glyndwr. He's a hero to the Welsh people and looms large over Welsh history. Many people compare him to the Scottish Braveheart, but he's still waiting on his big Hollywood treatment. I really wanted to cover this right now, especially because our last episode was about Nor and I at Con, which I feel like really kind of glorified and valorized kind of the British Empire um, and the British role in World War II. And I think this is kind of a nice balance to that. But before we jump into Owain Glyndwr's life and how he rebelled against the English takeover of Wales, I first have to thank all of the paying subscribers on Substack who helped me make this podcast possible. Y'all are the best, and this podcast would not still be going without you. If you like this show and you want more of it, please become a paying subscriber over on Substack. When you upgrade, you'll get access to exclusive content, merch, and behind-the-scenes updates on the upcoming Unruly Figures book. When you're ready to do that, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. Now, I don't usually do this, but I think this historical background is going to be unfamiliar to anyone who didn't grow up in the UK or didn't specifically study medieval history. So before I dive into Owen Glyndwr's life, I want to quickly run through some historical highlights leading up to his rebellion. 
So as you may know, the Normans were a dominant power from Normandy, France, which is on the northern coast, who had conquered England in 1066. William the Bastard became William the Conqueror, ruling England, and he made French the language of the land, kind of et cetera, et cetera. In their invasion, they pushed the then-dominant Anglo-Saxons and the previously dominant indigenous Celtic Britons west, forcing them to retreat to Wales and northern France, now known as Brittany. Though the Normans successfully took over the kind of the main body of England by the 12th century, they had not effectively invaded and conquered Wales at that time. The conquering of Wales happened much more slowly and gradually, with successive like Norman English rulers slowly pressing further southwest into Wales. And it's worth noting that Wales was not really a unified kingdom, but more like a few regions who saw themselves as comrades, but not a singular nation state the way we would think of a nation today. The Welsh, of course, fought back, most notably under the rulership of Llewellyn the Great in 1194. His son Daffod became the first person to hold the title Prince of Wales. Up until then, the dominant family in Wales had held the title King of Gwynedd. The war for English domination of Wales became quite brutal, and by 1283, all the men of the House of Gwynedd were dead. Wales as a sovereign nation or region fell, and the title Prince of Wales was conferred on the young Edward, son of King Edward I of England. Edward was actually born in Wales in 1284, and I covered him a little in my recent bonus episode about royal favorites. So the Welsh were officially a conquered people and region by the end of the 13th century. Unsurprisingly, they were not happy about it. Uh, And the fact that they weren't treated equally under English law made things much worse. In a series of successively more restrictive laws, Welshmen saw a lot of their rights stripped away. By 1402, they weren't allowed to carry arms or wear armor at all. People with castles saw them taken away by the English. They couldn't hold a municipal office. And they had to show up to fight English battles for their English rulers. Not turning up when called could invite a a treason charge. Welsh monasteries and abbeys were, quote, ransacked, and any documents that confirmed land possessions were destroyed so that the land could more easily be transferred to English lords. Oral tradition has 500 Welsh bards also being, quote, slaughtered to erase Welsh history and culture, as well as to prevent discontent from spreading through tales of Welsh heroes. It was a pretty bad situation, so this is the world that we're entering into. Now, I have to do my usual warning. We're talking about the medieval era, and we don't know much about Owen Glyndor's young life. Historians are pretty sure that he was born between 1354 and 1359 in northeast Wales, near what is now Wrexham. Yes, the same Wrexham of Ryan Reynolds' football investments. Legend has it that his father's horses stood in blood the night that he was born, and that as a baby, his crying could only be comforted by allowing him to touch a weapon. The second legend about the weapon, though, is also attached to his contemporary Edmund Mortimer, so it may just be that the two were conflated for a while and have become confused over time, as you'll see Edmund and Owain kind of uh, join forces at one point. In fact, a ton of prophecy surrounds the story of Owen Glyndor, which of course is sometimes hard to separate out from actual historical fact. On the more basic side is the idea that strange weather and cosmic happenings attended his birth, which increased the swirling rumors of prophecy around him as he grew into adulthood. 
In his lifetime, people would come to believe that he had the power to control the weather, which is either the source of the strange rumors at his birth or at the very least connected to them. In fact, the mid-14th century was the beginning of a small ice age in Europe, so the weather might have been unusually cold during his rebellion. As for astrological occurrences, comets do pass by Earth with relative frequency. Uh, Tutatis, I might not be pronouncing that correctly, um, but is a comet that usually passes Earth every four years, so it's possible that one passed by around his birth. Since Halley's Comet passed Earth just before William's invasion of England in 1066, the math doesn't pan out for it to have come by again in time for Glyndor's birth, but who knows what other cosmic occurrences could have happened. I mean, people theorize that with cleaner skies and less light pollution in a pre-industrial world, medieval people saw more cosmic movement than we can today. So was there an eclipse, a supermoon? You know, who knows? Any of these things would have been invested with a lot of meaning in the 14th century. Perhaps most intriguingly, one of the prophecies often linked to Owain Glyndwr is the prophecy of the six kings to follow John. Supposedly told to King Arthur by Merlin, the prophecy foretells of six reigns of English kings using animals as stand-ins from, quote, the Lamb of Winchester to the Accursed Mole. The lamb is, quote, easily recognizable as Henry III, and the second king animal, the dragon, is clearly meant to be Edward I. Following the prophecy all the way down then, the accursed mole is Henry IV, and it predicts that he will be struck down by a dragon, a wolf, and a lion, who will then split England among themselves, while the mole's, quote, seed will be completely fatherless in strange lands. Some people suppose that these details were embellished in the early 1400s as part of a political campaign supporting Glyndor's rebellion. But ultimately, we're talking about a medieval document that started its life as an oral tradition. It has been translated, embellished, and translated again since then. So if it ever was a work of prophecy and not just political propaganda, those details have probably been changed and messed up over time. Whether he was foretold or not, Glyndor came from royal stock. His father, and now this is when Welsh names start, and I'm going to pronounce several of them badly, and I have been working on it for like a month. It, it's just, it's hard for me, so I apologize if I'm offending anybody. But Owen Glyndor's father was Griffith Fiken II um, from the Powys family, um, which had ruled in northern Wales. His mother, Ellen Ferk Thomas Ap Llewellyn, was related to two different Welsh royal houses, de Hubarth and Gwynedd, the family that had long dominated Wales. With all the men of the Gwynedd family wiped out, Welsh people, hoping for freedom from England, would have naturally looked to someone like Owain Glyndwr with his very royal pedigree as their next uh, natural ruler. There is actually another man from around this time, also named Owain, um, who folks look to first. I'm going to cover him in a bonus episode. But Owain's life was not really what you'd imagine a young rebel's life would be like. Maybe people whispered in his ear about what a good ruler of Wales he could make, but it doesn't seem like he was raised with like hopes of overthrowing English rule being kind of instilled in him from a young age. His family was powerful, so he probably received a good education and had a comfortable home life, though we don't know if it was happy or not. Records of him really begin when Owen's father died when he was still a young teenager, and he was sent to live with the Englishman David Hanmer as his foster son. Hanmer had been raised in Wales and married into Welsh nobility, and historians have debated whether Hanmer considered himself English or Welsh. 
Glyndor went on to later marry Hanmer's daughter, Margaret, which would have required Hanmer's consent, so people take this as a sign that he identified more with his Welsh surroundings than his English roots. But this marriage also occurred before Glyndor's rebellion, so um, Hanmer might not have really realized that he would be seen as picking sides by allowing this marriage. On top of all this, we don't know what was going on in the background with Margaret, so I personally find it hard to say that this marriage means that Hanmer was like betraying his English roots. In any case, Owain and Margaret eventually had six sons and seven daughters. It's worth noting that some people believe that after his father's death, Glyndor was actually sent to live with the third Earl of Arundel, Richard Fitzalan. He was close to the Fitzalan family, and they crossed paths again kind of several times throughout this story. Perhaps he lived with the Fitzalans until the third Earl died in 1376 and then was taken in by David Hanmer. But I think this theory only makes sense if Glyndor was born in 1359 because he'd be only 16 and would still need a foster family in 1376. If he was born earlier in 1354, then I don't know how the different foster families make sense. Glyndor would have been an adult when the Earl of Arundel died, so I'm not really sure how those pieces fit together. Eventually, historians think around 1380, Glyndor was sent to London to study law and then became a legal apprentice, which was a standard seven-year apprenticeship at the time. He was probably in London for the Peasants' Revolt in June 1381, no telling what he thought of the popular uprising or the brutal repression of it. Maybe it served as inspiration to him, or maybe it scared him from uh, rising up sooner. We do know that in September 1386, um, Glyndor gave evidence in the Scrope Grosvenor trial, which was a brown, groundbreaking trial for heraldry. Two different knights had realized that they had the same coat of arms, which makes fighting on a battlefield confusing, and so they turned to the court of chivalry to decide who could continue to use them. Hundreds of witnesses were called, kind of wish the police would be this thorough with violent assaults today. Um, but again, hundreds of witnesses testified, including now famous figures like John of Gaunt and Geoffrey Chaucer and, as I mentioned, Owain Glyndor. He was only able to testify in this case because, in addition to his law training, Glyndor had signed up for military work in service of the King of England, Richard II. In 1384, so about halfway through his legal apprenticeship, Glyndor enlisted as part of the retinue of the famous Sir Degory Sace, one of the only three um, Welshmen who had been knighted by the English government at that time. Glyndor was stationed at Berwick on the border with Scotland and England. I think this fact surprises some people because we tend to think of these like homegrown rebels as being against the entire symbol of their oppressors, not specific oppressors themselves. We like to believe that Glyndor would have rebelled against any king of England, but that might not be the case. It seems that Glyndor was happy to serve Richard II, and he would only turn against the English monarchy later in his life. From a 21st century perspective, we tend to think of Richard II as a bad king, but in 1385, a young Glyndor might have seen the young king as someone worth following, but I don't want to get ahead of myself here. After being stationed at Berwick for several months, uh, Glyndor joined King Richard's campaign north into Scotland in 1385. He was in the troops under the command of John of Gaunt, Richard II's uncle. This was the campaign where Richard Scrope and Robert Grosvenor realized that they carried identical coats of arms. They probably had time to argue because this military campaign has gone down in history as, quote, a damp squib with no contact being made with the enemy. It sounds like there wasn't a lot of actual fighting happening except amongst themselves. 
In March 1387, Glyndwr went out for military service again, this time serving as a squire under the fourth Earl of Arundel, Richard Fitzalan. Instead of north to Scotland, they went southeast to Kent, where they defeated a fleet of Franco-Spanish-Flemish ships at the Battle of Margate. This was part of the much larger Hundred Years' War. The English forces looted 8,000 large casks of wine from the ships, which was such a huge influx into like the normal English wine market that the price of wine dropped throughout all of England for a full year. According to historian Adrian R. Bell, the entire city of Flanders called this loss of wine, quote, the worst disaster to beset that area since the Black Death. Later that year, in December 1387, Glyndwr served at the Battle of Radcot Bridge. It's hard to tell whose side he was on at the, this point. Many claim he fought on the side of the defiant Lord's Pellant under John of Gaunt's son, Henry Bolingbroke, later to be crowned Henry IV. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first military action of the Lord's Appellant against Richard II. These lords were protesting what they saw as Richard's tyrannical rule and had tried to have five of his favorites banished from court. Although Glyndwr had supported Richard II up until this point, it is possible that he had changed his mind and began to see Richard as incompetent. But anyway, no matter how he arrived and on whose side he fought, we know that Glyndwr left this battle as enemies with Henry Bolingbroke. After this battle, which Bolingbroke and the Lord's Appellant won, Glyndwr returned to Wales. His father-in-law, David Hanmer, had passed away during 1387, and Glyndwr was the ex executor of his estate, as well as one of the inheritors. What Glyndwr did once he'd settled the Hanmer estate is a matter of enormous speculation. Some people believe that he chilled in Wales for 10 or so years, raising his growing family. Some believe that he returned to London to serve as a squire of the body to Richard II, though others believe he was actually serving Bolingbroke in the same role. If he was serving Bolingbroke, that might mean that Glyndwr was with Bolingbroke when he went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1392 and 1393. It might also imply that when Bolingbroke was briefly banished to France in 1398, Glyndwr had the choice between going abroad with him or returning home. Personally, I think he probably stayed home in the 1390s for a few reasons. The first is that upon his return in 1387 or 1388, depending on how long it took him to travel after the Battle of Radcot Bridge, Glyndwr would have seen the effect of Richard's tightening noose around Wales. Many historians think he probably hadn't had many chances to return to Wales between 1380 and 1387, so he might have been shocked by the impact of the new and worsening laws being enacted against the Welsh people. Remember, every year or so, Parliament was coming up with new ways to repress the Welsh in favor of the English. People were losing their homes and jobs with no recourse for recovery. I just can't imagine that after seeing all that, he would be super eager to serve either Richard II or Henry Bolingbroke. A second reason would be the known enmity between Bolingbroke and Glyndwr. The Battle of Radcot Bridge had left him unimpressed with the king's rebellious cousin. If he left Wales, I doubt it was to serve Bolingbroke. And the third reason that I think he stayed home is the records from a poet named Iolo Gach, who visited Glyndwr's castle and seems to have stayed with him for a long time. In his poem, Owen Glyndwr's Court, Iolo paints his journey as a long-awaited pilgrimage, then describes a beautiful home that's, quote, a shelter for poets, a place for everyone. Every day, everyone is allowed there. Ferris Timber Court, faultless lord of the kingdom. Meanwhile, things were progressing to a breaking point. 
1397, Richard II executed Glyndwr's friend and neighbor, the fourth Earl of Arundel. He also executed or exiled a few other members of the Lord's Appellant. On July 4, 1399, while Richard was on a military campaign in Ireland, Henry Bolingbroke returned from exile in France with a French army. Despite initially claiming that he had no intention of taking the English crown, he did exactly that on October 13, 1399, becoming Henry IV. Richard II had signed his abdication a couple of weeks earlier and was basically never seen again. Now, this was not good for Owen Glendur. The newly crowned Henry IV was not a fan of Glendur, nor of Wales in general. His dislike of the Welsh was so well known that the region had actually briefly risen up in defense of Richard II that summer, reportedly blocking Bolingbroke's advances to London. This was despite how badly Richard II's rule had treated Wales. Henry IV apparently made things worse by writing decrees forbidding Welshmen to wear armor and forbidding Welsh children from being educated. They couldn't even hold apprenticeships with other Welsh adults. Things were getting much worse. It was also bad for Glyndwr because Henry IV's usurpation marked the rise of a wealthy man named Reginald de Grey, who had bought many of the Welsh lands neighboring Glyndwr's properties. They had once been owned by the Arundel family and had been confiscated by the crown when the Earl of Arundel was executed. Grey was a key official of Henry IV's coronation, a former governor of Ireland, a member of the King's Council, and a peer in Parliament. He held a lot of power, basically, and he used it to start trying to take Glyndor's lands from him. Around the same time, Henry IV rewarded Henry Hotspur Percy, Earl of Northumberland, for his loyalty by making him the Lord High Constable. He also grant- granted Hotspur the Judiciaryship of North Wales, a very powerful position. Now, if Hotspur sounds familiar, it might be because he's one of Shakespeare's most famous characters ever. He also lends his nickname to the modern football team, the Tottenham Hotspurs. I bring him up now only so we don't have to backtrack when he becomes important to the story, but just keep Hotspur in mind. So several times in 1399, Glyndwr formally protested against Lord Reginald de Grey's attempts to take his land. Parliamentary records specifically name a town or property called Crusoe, which is close to the north coast of Wales and like the Welsh-English border. Before Richard II was captured, he'd heard the cases and ruled in Glyndor's favor. But once Henry IV took over, Lord Grey reclaimed the land and further requests for parliamentary rulings were ignored. Instead of hearing his case in the spring of 1400, they said, quote, What care we for barefoot Welsh curs? And told Glyndor to grant Lord Grey further concessions. Glyndor left London fuming. A few months later, Henry IV issued a muster for forces to fight for England in Scotland. All the barons who had been required to pledge loyalty to Henry IV were required to show up with a certain number of men. However, Lord Grey intercepted Glyndwr's muster letter and didn't pass on the orders until it was too late for Glyndwr to respond in time, too late to even send a letter explaining his absence. Ignoring an order of the king was considered treasonous, and the result would have been the seizure of Glyndor's estates kind of at minimum, a result that Lord Grey obviously wanted. It seems, however, that that didn't work quickly enough for Lord Grey, because in early September 1400, he invited Glyndor to a reconciliation meeting with a letter carried by friars of a local monastery— This would have made his request for reconciliation seem more genuine. It's a big deal to lie to men of the church, after all. They set up a meeting at Glyndor's court on the condition that Grey arrived with only 30 armed followers. 
He lied, of course, and brought a much larger and heavily armed party. The poet I mentioned earlier, Iolo Gok, is apparently the man who noticed the extra soldiers hidden in the darkness outside Glindwar's home. In a story that sounds like it was written for a movie, Gok delivered a warning to Glindor by reciting a poem that somehow hinted at the secret attack and Glindor got away. However, since Gok and Glindor both spoke Welsh and Lord Grey didn't, I doubt he needed to go through the whole like operatic nonsense of publicly reciting a poem when he could have just like whispered in his ear or something. Obviously, the poetic version is, well, more poetic, and if Glindwar does get a movie treatment, this performance will probably be in it, but we should all know that it probably didn't happen that way because it's like the least sneaky way ever. Either way, Glindwar escaped just before Lord Grey's men attacked. He went into hiding in the mountains of Wales with a very small force of men, some estimate like seven. It's frequently said that this is the moment that Owain Glendur realized he would never be able to get justice through legitimate means. His legal options exhausted, Glendur began his war on September 16, 1400. He was proclaimed Prince of Wales at his court at Carog and raised his royal family's Gwynedd flag as part of the fight. Some call this, quote, the standard of national revolt, though I'm not totally clear on whether that is a result of Glendor's fight or if that was already a known association with this flag. Bards quickly spread the news, and 250 men volunteered to join his battle. Glendor's lands were soon confiscated by the English crown, and he began a guerrilla campaign to drive the English out of Wales. Considering the discriminatory policies that the Welsh had been dealing with for generations, it wasn't hard for him to find broad support. He began with burning Lord Grey's lands, both as retaliation for everything Lord Grey had done up to then, but also to economically hinder him. Grey needed the rents and income from those lands to fund his fight against Glendor. They began burning a few other towns as well, and some towns were burned so frequently throughout this rebellion that they became known as burnt towns, all one word. In June 1401, Hotspur was sent to crush Glendor's rebellion. They met at Dolgalau in northwest Wales, the heart of Glendor's supporters. He sent back a message to Henry IV boasting of his success at destroying the men, but it was pretty much a lie. The battle was a draw. Hotspur engaged Glendor's forces several more times. I'm not going to get into every battle, but suffice it to say that it was not going well for Hotspur's forces because they just didn't know the land as well. Glindwar's men could attack um, and melt away into the hills because they just knew Wales better. Meanwhile, word of his rebellion was spreading, and educated Welsh men from the University of Oxford began traveling back to Wales to support the rebellion. Hotspur ended up changing tactics eventually, and instead of bragging and boasting, he began writing urgently to Henry IV, encouraging him to issue a general pardon for North Wales if the men there would put down their weapons. It seems that when Parliament gathered that fall, they briefly considered settling the Welsh question with a treaty for peace, but nothing came of it, probably due to the influence of Lord Grey. That fall, Glyndwr traveled to Carnarvon Castle in Gwynedd, northwest Wales. There, he raised the famous and extremely symbolic flag of Uther Pendragon, a golden dragon on a white shield. It symbolized that Owain Glyndwr was now the Prince of Wales and King of the Britons, a reclamation of independence that hadn't really been possible since Llewellyn the Great. It also invoked the ancient Britonic stories of King Arthur, who is not as popular in Welsh lore, but was known, and it linked Glyndwr with the legends of great saviors and redeemers who freed oppressed peoples. 
This is a symbolic and important power move that Glendora was making, and it brought out more supporters who had been hesitant before. And if you want to see that shield, um, I have a photo of it in the Substack. In fact, Glendora kept succeeding militarily against kind of all odds. Since Welsh men had been banned from wearing armor or owning weapons, at first there weren't a lot of men who could fight in this rebellion, and people were understandably nervous during the early stages. But the more Glendwar succeeded against the larger and stronger English army, the more volunteers showed up to fight for Welsh freedom. And legends began to grow about how Glendwar was so successful. Rumors began to spread that he could control the weather because the English army was repeatedly stopped from attacking by torrential rains, flooded rivers, heavy fogs, and more. His contemporaries thought he was a witch of some sort, or at least aided by witches. Glendwar leaned into this aura of magic and mystery. In addition to probably spreading the prophetic legends of his own birth, he famously consulted a master of prophecy whose name I'm absolutely going to butcher, and for that I'm very sorry. But the man was Hobson ap Thomas ab Enian of Yenis Forgen. I apologize. Um, he was a, quote, renowned bibliophile recognized for his knowledge of Welsh lore. While he may have made predictions of his own about Glendwar, he was probably equally useful for learning about other prophetic possibilities. He may have described many different prophecies to Glendor. We know that he was busy lamenting the loss of Welsh culture through English domination and was documenting Welsh oral traditions and stories when Glendor called on him. Glendor also employed a prophet full-time, a man named Kraki Finnet, but apparently wanted a second opinion to find out what might happen to him. Was he the deliverer that old Welsh lore promised? I think to modern ears, this interest in prophecy can seem strange, but medieval prophecies often had their roots in biblical lore and were used for political currency. Unfortunately, exactly what Hobson told him and whether Glendwar even believed it, um, beyond what it could mean for his political legitimacy, is more or less unknown. Glendwar's enemies grew frustrated as the battles in Wales dragged on. Hotspur and the rest of the Percy family were increasingly split between their military obligations in Wales and their military obligations in Northumberland, a region on the border between Scotland and England. They were basically tasked with maintaining England's two land borders, and both were experiencing rebellions and uprisings. Worse, they were kind of doing this alone. Henry IV stopped paying wages to the soldiers at some point, and the Percy family was funding all of this fighting from their own pockets, which were quickly turning up empty. There's some historical debate about when the Percy family turned their backs on Henry IV. Both Henry Hotspur Percy and his father, also named Henry Percy, truly there are too many Henrys in this story, they had both fought for Henry Bolingbroke when he um, usurped the throne from Richard II in 1399, but in 1403, they were openly rebelling against the new king. Some historians claim that Hotspur was against Henry the whole time, colluding with Owain Glendor and the Welsh as early as Glendor's declaration in September 1400. The proof may be in the lies that he told Henry IV about how his battles against Glendor were going. But others claim that his change of heart came later, only once he started fighting against Glendor in Wales and wasn't getting paid to do it. What we do know is that Hotspur and Glendor were related through marriages into the Mortimer family. Hotspur was married to the third Earl of March Edmund Mortimer's eldest daughter, Elizabeth, while Glendor's daughter, Catherine, married Edmund Mortimer's son, also named Edmund, the fourth Earl of March in 1402. Hotspur and Glendor probably crossed paths at various battles for Richard II, 
But a lot of people point to this familial connection as the beginning of the kind of joint Glyndor-Percy rebellion. Unfortunately for him, Hotspur was killed early into the rebellion. He died at the Battle of Shrewsbury just months after they openly declared against the king. But his father remained in the fight. In February 1405, Henry Percy Sr., Owen Glendore, and Edmund Mortimer Jr. came to an infamous agreement, the Tripartite Indenture. The document, contemporary summaries of which survive to today, laid out how the three would lead the rebellion against Henry IV, and then how they would govern England and Wales once he was overthrown. It was pretty straightforward. Glyndor would take Wales and some of West England, the Percys would have Northern England, and the Mortimers would have Southern England. Importantly, it doesn't divide the land into separate kingdoms, but the three families would rule over the country as a kind of council together. Around the same time that Glyndor was negotiating this tripartite indenture, he was also contacting the French king Charles VI for military support. On January 12, 1405, Glyndor signed the aptly titled Confederation Between Wales and France, which promised French aid against Henry IV. That Glyndor was sending ambassadors abroad, who were then taken seriously when they arrived, speaks to how strong his rebellion was. In fact, by 1404, Glyndor more or less had control over Wales. He established a separate parliament, which met and issued laws, and he had ecclesiastical control in the region. His army swelled, and he was recognized as the Prince of Wales, well on his way to establishing an independent principality again, even if there wasn't really a signed treaty yet. In fact, really the only thing dragging the rebellion on was Henry IV's refusal to believe it was over. He just kept sending men to die in Wales. And unfortunately, that plan of Henry IV's worked. Without getting into all of the battles, because the documentation is confusing, so there's a lot of question marks next to dates, Glyndor's grip on Wales started to slip in 1405. Henry IV was a surprisingly bad military commander that had actually been one of the many issues that Hotspur had taken with him. And the king was convinced to turn over military control to his son and heir, who Shakespeare immortalized as Prince Hal. The prince turned out to be a much better commander than his father. And Glyndor's forces suffered major losses as the battle season got underway in 1405. French reinforcements, though promised, arrived too little too late. The Percys and the Mortimers in England were crushed as well, and the tide of battle turned against the Welsh Rebellion. Prince Hal slowly but surely marched further into Wales, recapturing Glyndor's strongholds and crushing resistance wherever he found it. A lot of people put kind of the formal ending date of the rebellion in 1408 or 1409, That's sort of when we see the last major battles and when Prince Hal's grip on Wales became more or less complete. There were some final kind of the gasps of rebellion, some ongoing guerrilla tactics into at least 1412, maybe as late as 1416, but it was pretty much over years before that. The interesting part of this is that we don't know what became of Owen Glendur. Normally when rebellions are put down, especially in the medieval era, We see the leader's dead body put on display to prove that the rebellion's main cause was over. But that didn't happen with Glyndor. If he was caught, those documents don't exist, and no one records him being executed or his body being displayed. We know that in 1415, Prince Hal, by then King Henry V, offered Glyndor a pardon, but that he didn't take it. That indicates that he survived at least until 1415 and people kind of knew where to reach him. 
We know that he spent his final years on the run. His family had been arrested and was held more or less hostage by the English royal family. And rather than be executed, most people believe that Glendor hid in caves and with sympathetic friends for the rest of his life. Most historians place Glendor's death in 1416, and legend has it that he's buried at Monnington Court, the home of his son-in-law, John Scudamore. But a better legend has it that, like King Arthur, Owain Glendor is somewhere, waiting for his chance to return to Wales and free his homeland. And that is the story of Owain Glendor. If you want to learn more about him, I really, really recommend the book Owain Glendor, a casebook, which contains a unique collection of original documents related to Glendor, as well as essays by scholars interpreting them. If you liked this story, you are going to love my book, Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries You've Probably Never Heard Of. It is out on March 5th, 2024, but you can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. You can also let me know your thoughts about this or any other episode on Substack, Twitter, and Instagram, where my username is unrulyfigures. If you have a moment, please give this show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other folks find the show. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Castellanos-Clark. My research assistant is Nico Angelgarjulo. If you are into supporting independent research, please share this with at least one person you know. Heck, start a group chat. Tell them that they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. But for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content, come over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at hello at unrulyfigurespodcast.com. If you'd like to send us something, you can send it to P.O. Box 27162, Los Angeles, California, 90027. Until next time, stay unruly. Unruly.